it's good to be with you and talk about marriage. As Pete told you already, last weekend, Pastor Joel began this series. And I love the way he laid it out to, first of all, talk about the spirit of marriage, because it makes sense that we would start there with the form of how God designed not only the entire universe, but all it contains, and has even given us a design for the way we are to be in relationship with one another, with the most important relationships in our lives, as well as with the relationships that we just encounter with people that God might put into our path in both models of how he created the universe and how he has formed us together. It's his spirit that hovered over the chaos, over the deep, and brought order and design to it. Last weekend, Pastor Joel laid that out about the way it works and what it means for those of us who are married and intend to continue to be so, and those of us who are not married and intend for it to continue to be so. Either way, it is those spirit, that spirit of marriage and the principles it contains that gives us form to know how we are to go on from here. What is the mission of our marriage. Once we know how something is formed, we then need to know its purpose. And so that's what we hope to talk about today together is the purpose, the mission of marriage. And so as kind of, as a backdrop for that and the sermon text that I'd like to use for that is in Titus chapter 1 and 2 and this is a letter that Paul wrote to one of his disciples, Titus. Titus was continuing to be a leader in a church that Paul himself had planted between his third and fourth missionary journey on the island of Crete. Crete is a part of Greece. And Crete at that time was almost was proverbial in the way it was an evil culture. It was known as such. Cicero, a Greek philosopher, said that it would be impossible to find a culture where personal integrity was harder to find and, personal and public policy was more unjust than Crete. It was a dangerous and difficult place and culture around Crete was difficult and dangerous for the Christians there in this newly formed church. And so what they did is they began to conform themselves somewhat to the culture around them. Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore? And so Paul, getting wind of this, getting news of this, writes a letter to Titus to correct some things that they were beginning to just drift toward. In their, in their culture within the church. And that's what we find in this letter to Titus. Paul writes the letter to Titus, but he says to Titus that I want you to read this to the whole church. And there was no time limit put on how long there would be before we stop reading this to the whole church. So let me read a portion of it to you now, starting with Titus 1, 16. Paul writes, they profess, they being the other people in Crete outside the church, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then in chapter two, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model 
of good works. And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. And I'll pause there in the letter, but this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I know that for many of you, you hear texts like this and immediately form your own conclusions about what's the deal with slaves and what's the deal with women being submissive, you know, and what's the deal with men laying down their lives? And that's not what I'm going to talk about today uh, because you've already formed your own opinion on that and you can do your own study on that. But rather to pull out of here, Paul was not giving a prescriptive instruction on how actually these relationships would work themselves out day to day, but rather giving a counter description to how the church should be viewed in opposition to or in light of the culture around the church in Crete. And because God's word is timeless and it will never return void, it has purpose, it has mission, and it has application for us today in our lives as well. And we can pull principles out of here and understand God's mission for marriage, God's mission for us in whatever relationships we're in. That's what we intend to do. Last week when Pastor Joel was talking about uh, the spirit of marriage, he used an alliteration. He reminded us that we live in a foggy world. And within the fog, we need three things. We need fit. We need to know how we fit together. We need faithfulness. And that faithfulness will yield fruitfulness. And from that, then we will be able to move on to the mission. So hope you got that part because we're going to move on from there. But just to remind you of how this works in a foggy world, we need markers. Last week, Pete read to you a quote from N.T. Wright about we need signposts in life. And marriage is one of the signposts for us. But we also need some other metaphors to use to understand this. And, and as I thought about this all week in the fog that we live in in our own culture, there's a song that I love that I kept coming back to. It's called Flagship of the Fleet. And, and if you, you know what a flagship is, a flagship is the ship in a fleet of ships. It's not a solitary ship, but it's a ship in a fleet of ships. That's the lead ship. It's the ship that holds up the colors, the banner, the flag of the nation, the kingdom, or the culture that it represents. A flagship is the most heavily armored of all the other ships. It's also the, the ship that is first into the battle. It sets the stage, it sets the tone in the midst of the battle of how the rest of the fleet should operate. It's where the orders come from. And so in the midst of the fog of relationship, we need a flagship. It's so true, the, the different verses in it kind of tell the story of relationship in, in different parts of our life, in different aspects. You know, the verse about the couple in the corner of the bar, they've traveled light and clearly traveled far. There's nothing more she can learn about his heart, and so they sit there a thousand miles apart. It's a sad song. But we can make that statement, let's not ever get that way. You know, we can say that to each other regardless of our marital situation. We can say, let's not let our relationships get that way. Let's not go there. How do we make sure that we are that standard, that we have that standard in our lives, the flagship that we can look to. And it's an easy answer just to say, well, we know that Jesus is our flagship and he's our commander and he is, and it's true. But any of you who are married who have, or have been married know 
it's tough, it's tough, it's a tough job. And we also know that even taking it to another level of mission, once we've even established the form, as Pete reminded us of what Joel taught us last week, that it forms our character and our goal, and that is holiness. And even when we get there, then where do we go next? What do we do next? Even if we have the best of relationships, what is next for us? Well, it's important for us to keep this in mind that, again, God's design is what we're looking for here. It's God's design for relationship and for marriage. And so I want to remind you again that a flagship is something that does set the pace and sets the banner. And we as the church are called upon to be the flagship for the world. We unfortunately get it turned around and we allow the world to set the pace for us. And that's our job, is to, set the, is to be the flagship for the culture around us. And so with that in mind, let me just, I'm just going to take you through a few thoughts here that come from God's Word that can maybe help us to get this perspective. You know, I've heard it said that if you want to change someone, you either hurt them deeply or love them profoundly. And it will change them. For each of us, we've experienced probably both sides of that in our life, regardless of our age. We've either been hurt deeply or loved profoundly. I hope, hope you've been loved profoundly. And in doing so, we'll change one another. There's also this, this kind of culture around marriage and relationship that would say that the more you give yourself away, the culture would say, the more you give yourself away, the less there is of you. But the message of the gospel is just the opposite of that. The more we give ourselves away, that we actually exponentially increase the value and the mission of our life here on this earth. And so we want to get inside some of that truth. If that's in the Bible, let's find it and see how this affects us as the flagship. Paul has described it very well with these words from Philippians chapter 1, where he writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So the point of Paul's letter here to the church at Philippi is that when you do, when you have one mind, on issues like this, on issues like relationship, that not only does it contribute to our well-being, but to our enemy and to, our, and to those who would want to seek and destroy that which God has given us, that it simply points out to the enemy his own destruction. And so it has a twofold working for our good and for the, and the suppression of the evil in the world, which is again a part of our mission. And so within our own difficult culture of relationship and marriage, let's go again and find some places that we are to do this. The first thing to realize is that we are not meant to be alone. Again, heard this very clearly last week. A friend of mine sent me this quote of Oswald Chambers where Chambers wrote these words. He said, beware of isolation because the idea that you have, beware of the idea that you have to develop a holy life alone. It's impossible to develop a holy life alone for you will turn into an oddity and a peculiarism into something utterly unlike what God wants you to be. The only way to develop spiritually is to go into the society of God's own children and you will find how God alters you. God does not contradict our social instincts. He alters them. He literally changes our desires for how relationships should work as a result of being in community together. 
chambers the same. And so for us, we realize that if we're going to be the flagship, we've got to have these marks in our life that set us apart, different from the culture, but not so weird that the culture wouldn't want to look at us and wonder, how did we get this way? And the first mark, last weekend again, Pastor Joel used alliteration. I thought it was a good model, helped me remember it. I thought I would just follow his example and you do the same thing. And so he said last week that we look at the fit and faithful, which will make us fruitful. The three marks that I think help us distinguish then our mission in the world to be a flagship in the world, I think are these. First and foremost, that we're fearless. And secondly, that we know our function and then finally, how that results in fidelity. So let me unpack this with you just a little bit. The first one is fearless. There's a great place where Jesus tells us how this works in our life. That in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, first he, remain, he reminds us that we can't have two masters. We can only have one. And then Jesus says these words. He says there in verse 26, Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll put on is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? It's a rhetorical question Jesus is asking. Because the answer is, yes, you are. You are of more value. He's not saying live like a bird and I'll give you everything you need. He's saying, listen, you're more valuable to me than birds. And he goes on then to describe the lilies of the field and how they're clothed and they don't do anything to be as beautiful as they are, but because God provides, then they are beautiful. And then he, he gets to the, the line here that we need to be thinking about today in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. For you and me, the question here is not so much Will God provide? Let me just assure you of this from God's word, that it is God's nature to provide for us what we need. It is his very nature to provide what we need. But it's God's desire that we would seek him before we seek those needs. And when we get that turned around, then we get an awkward and weird relationship with God. When we flip that to where, God, if you will meet my needs, I'll seek you with all my life. I'll seek you with all my heart. And in God's economy, it's just the other way. God says, seek me first, and then I'll give you what you need. And so what makes us fearful, what makes us anxious, what Jesus is anticipating here, in these illustrations is that because we're so anxious about what we need tomorrow, that we'll be fearful that they won't come, it won't happen, and we'll be left without. And in that scarcity economy that we then create around our thinking, then we live in a fearful world and we're afraid of everything around us. We get afraid of not only our needs, but who might come and take what we have away from us. We live in a fearful and anxious place. And there's no way to live out the mission of Christ from a fearful place. If you're afraid, you cannot fight the battle. You just simply can't. And so instead, Jesus is saying, Think about where you do have power. What do we have? Where does our power come from? Our power comes from God. Our power comes from God alone. And when does that power come? Well, he makes, he says, don't be worried about tomorrow because here's the deal. You have no control over tomorrow. You have no power related to tomorrow. 
You have been freed from your past, so your past has no power over you today unless you give it power. And you have no control over tomorrow, and so you ha that can only make you anxious if that's where you choose to live your life. What do you have? You have this moment. You have right now. And what Jesus is saying to us is be present, be fully here, be fearless in this moment. And that is, a, that is a, a significant part of knowing how to live a fearless life. You've no doubt seen the news story of these three young Americans on that train from Amsterdam to Paris, Stone, Scarlatos, and Sadler who in a moment made a decision. A man walks onto the train with an AK-47 and other weapons and, and they surmise in that moment that he is up to no good. That would be an accurate observation, right? These three young men were fearless in the way they took this guy out. Now let me just tell you that those guys, I did not sit there thinking, well, let's analyze this situation. That man has an AK-47, we have backpacks. You know, they didn't sit there and try to figure it out in the moment. Somewhere, I don't know these guys, I don't know anything about them, except I know just what you know from the news. But I've seen men like this, you have too, and women. Somewhere along the way in their life, they made a decision that they were not going to live in fear. And so when they saw a threatening situation, they responded to it. They responded because they believed they could do something about it, and they did. We have that same kind of opportunity. Regardless of how fearful you've been in the past or anxious you've been in the past, today you can say, you can begin to live a fearless life. Now, I'm, I know I'm making it sound, I know it's not easy, but you have to start somewhere. And I'm saying start today. Start today by not being anxious about tomorrow. Trust God to that. And before we close, we're going to ask God to help us with that because only he can really do that in our lives. But we have to say it. We have to determine it. We have to will it in our own lives by his power that we will not live fearful lives. The way we know that Jesus didn't live a fearful life is how his life ended and what he did for us. But you know, long before Jesus went to the cross, he did some fearless things. In fact, when he announced his own job description, it's recorded in Luke 4, where he walked into the temple, took the scroll of Isaiah and opened it up and began to read it to the people there. And the scroll of Isaiah, his job description said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said the most radical thing that had ever been heard in that temple, ever. And he, he rolled up the scroll and said, today, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Those were bold words to say. Almost got him killed that very day. But he was fearless because he knew his mission. And he came and announced his mission. And he, and he said, it's fulfilled. It's as good as done. Because my word is my bond, it's as good as done because you've heard it today. Now you know what to me, all each of those things that are listed in that, and I would encourage you, I've spent some time this week just thinking about what each one of those statements would have meant to that audience as they heard it that day. We don't have time for me to go through that, but you should, I would encourage you to read through them. And the news it would have been to everyone hearing that that day. 
because it was profound, it was fearless, and it was his mission, it was his function, the second F is function. Jesus knew his role was eventually one day his mission would be to lay down his life on a cross and then rise again. But in those three years from the time he announced that and the day he would go to the cross, he had a mission. He had a mission that he intended to fulfill every single day of his life. He had set his sights on that hill of Calvary. But until he got there, he was going to day by day proclaim this good news. We have that same mission. We have the mission Jesus had. And it's not something that we arrive at instantly, but we do it step by step, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The same image is the image of Jesus. We have that same mission. So what keeps us from doing that? Well, it can be that we think we're not valuable enough, or we think that we're not capable, we think we're not worthy. We think we don't know. And so we look around at some lesser missions in the world today, and like the Christians in Crete, they then profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny God. And they want to do good things in the culture, but they're fearful and they're not clear of their mission. I think if there is one singular thing that probably set Jesus apart from everyone else, from every other teacher, from everyone that they had encountered, and they not knowing for sure that he was the Messiah was this. I think Jesus, even in that proclamation of his mission, Jesus was fully present with every person he met. Jesus was fully aware of every person that was put in front of him. He was so aware of every single human being around him that he even could walk through a crowd and a woman touched the hem of his garment and he knew it because he felt the power go out from him. Jesus was fully aware of every single person in his path. Think of the difference that would make. Start with your marriage. If you were fully present, Men, can we talk here? I mean, if you just put down the remote for 30 seconds, I see you punching one another. And women, if, if we can be fully present, you know what? I think that if we're able to do that, the, the issue with roles kind of fades away, right? If we're fully present with one another, we're not trying to figure out, now what's your role and what's my role? If we're fully present, if we give all of ourselves as much as we can in every moment that we're together, it changes everything. I think Jesus was able to do that. He was able to be fully present. And so, how about us? What stops us from doing that? You know, like in the song, you know, they'd traveled far and they decided there's nothing more to learn about one another's heart. What, how does that happen? I don't think it happens in any big events. Sometimes it does, but even getting to big events, betrayals, infidelity, those things don't start just, they're not things that just drop on us all of a sudden. They begin in small ways small steps, small decisions that are made, small moments of just, nah, I think I'm just going to focus on me for a while. It starts in little ways. I know this is true in my own life, in my own relationship with God. It can just be in little things that I decide I'm going to just not focus so much on it. It can be that way in incidental events even in our lives. On Friday, Connie and I uh, were traveling and came back to the United States and we, we were, it, it took us 10 hours to get back to the U.S. We crossed several time zones and so Friday night went to bed and yesterday morning woke up like super early 
because of the time zone thing. Our body clocks were six hours later and felt awesome. I mean, it felt like it was noon, you know, and woke up in that sweet spot of time zone travel. So woke up, you know, super early, got up, we did laundry, we cleaned the house, we made breakfast, you know, I worked on this sermon some, I prayed, I went through, you know, checked off my the stuff I needed to do the, over for the week and did all that. And it still was only six o'clock in the morning. And I thought, man, there are people that actually live their lives this way. Joel Hunter's one of them, you know, gets up super early. I'm not an early riser. And, and so I thought, this is amazing to be up this early and get this much done. And I thought, I think I'll, I'm feeling so good about stuff. I'm going to go ride my bike, which I love to do. But usually by the time I get on my bike, it's late in the day and it's really hot. Well, at six o'clock in the morning, I mean, it was delightful. The air was crisp, you know, 86 degrees, 74% humidity. I haven't felt weather like that in months, you know, and, and so I thought it was a perfect time to ride my bike. And, and usually when I ride my bike, I, I put on, I have my earbuds in, I'm listening to podcasts or music and, and, and Saturday morning yesterday, I said, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to ride along and I'm going to pray through this passage and I'm going to meditate on it. I'm going to pray for you, pray for the words that will be spoken in these rooms. So I just had, I thought, I'm just a godly man. I'm, I'm up early. I'm exercising. I'm taking care of the temple. You know, I'm doing, I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. And I was riding along on the cross Seminole trail and I was feeling really good about myself. And I was just, and I was pretty sure God was feeling really good about me too. I mean, felt like, you know, the sun was coming out. I thought, this is, I might just do this every day. You know, it's just awesome. And as I'm riding along, feeling all this and thinking how great it was and how awesome I am, all of a sudden, a bug flew in my mouth. <laughs> I, I promise, I'm not making this up. A bug flew in my mouth. And, you know, we had that, you probably maybe had this happen to you as well, you know, where you have these, this moment of, of conflict where you don't know whether the bug's going to go south or east, you know, and, and you're fighting kind of, I was trying to decide which, you know, was I going to yield into the bug, you know, and just let him go, you know, or could I somehow, I don't want to be too graphic, but I was... I was trying to figure it out. He was trying to figure it out, you know, and, but all of a sudden everything shifted in my focus. You know, I was not praying except that God would remove this bug from my mouth. You know, my needs all of a sudden totally shifted, you know, to something else. Well, the bug, as I started realizing he wasn't going to leave my body, he in fact was going to inhabit my body. And he went down and, and as I swallowed the bug, I know it's a little bit gross, but as I swallowed the bug, I started thinking a lot about the bug. Some of my friends in this room know that they lovingly tell me that I can be a bit obsessive. And I know it's true in some areas, good areas of my life. And I started to obsess a little bit on what kind of bug I'd swallowed. I, I realized it was not a gnat, you know. And I started thinking, maybe it's a bee. Because I thought I felt a little bit of a sting, you know. And I thought, well, maybe it may have been a hornet. And I had just that, I just that morning, because I was up really early, heard this NPR report about this South African hornet <laughs> that actually has a poisonous venom that with a sting, this, you can die within eight minutes of, of being stung by the hornet. It wasn't funny to me at the time. I mean... So I'm riding along and I'm thinking about the, as this hornet had gone down my esophagus, I, I was pretty sure I had felt him stinging me as he was sliding down my gullet, you know, and, and I thought eight minutes and I have this little clock on my bike and I thought eight minutes 
I, I can't get home in eight minutes and I don't want to die on the cross Seminole Trail. But I'm riding along and so I'm watching the little clock and I'm praying fervently, not for you. Uh, and as I go, I, I'm thinking maybe, it may be that a test of whether this is actually that South African hornet that I've swallowed would be if I lose my voice, you know, if I can't talk. And so um, I start talking, you know, to, just to reassure myself. And I was self-talk, you know, I'm okay, I'm not gonna die, I'm gonna live, you know. And I started thinking of the irony of having flown 10 hours just to get back to Florida, you know, and all time zone and whatnot, and that I had worked all week on this sermon and that I wasn't even gonna get to preach it Saturday night or Sunday morning because I'd be dead in about four more minutes. And, you know, and, and it would have been wasted, all this, you know. And so I'm saying to God, you don't wanna waste this, you, you know. You don't want to, we don't want to waste this time. And well, as, as I'm going, I start, I literally start, because I don't know what else to do, I start preaching the sermon. Nobody was around. So I start preaching the sermon thinking, well, at least I'm going to get it out one time here. And so I start preaching the sermon and, before, and as I'm preaching away and going through this whole thing of, you know, of flagship, you know, and, and function, and I'm trying to remember now, what were my, what were my words, you know, and, and, and I'm going through them and, and then all of a sudden there was no one there until there was people there. And I realized I was somewhat in the middle of this group of about 20 guys on bicycles. And they were going down the Cross Seminole Trail as well. And they had all slowed down about 15 miles an hour to ride it with me because I'm preaching. And for about 30 seconds, you know, they listened to me. And I, it took me that long to realize they were there. And then I just kind of looked around. It was a bit awkward. And, and then they just kind of smiled and went on. And I realized the eight minutes had passed and sure enough, I was gonna live. And so uh, I got back home, you know, and I, I went in and I'd just been through a horrible ordeal. And I went in and said to Connie, you'll never believe what happened out on the Cross Seminole Trail. And I told her, I said, I, I swallowed what I think was a South African hornet. And she just went, huh, and, and just walked away. And, and I just thought, you know, this is how it begins. 41 years. And you just walk away, you know. It's how it begins. It's little things like that. And I tell you that out of my own embarrassment to say, don't do that. You know, stop. And my wife's not here, so I feel pretty free to talk about her. And... But stop and, and at least say, huh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you swallowed that hornet, you know. <laughs> what can I do? You know, anything, just say anything. But we do this in little ways in our lives and little things that we do with people and for people or don't do. And in doing that, we begin to create these barriers. I, Connie didn't say that last part, I just made that up. The rest of the story is true. I don't think it was a South African hornet though at this point, but it just made for a better story if it was. And so, but I, I, I want you to know this, that I did think about that yesterday, about not her, but me and how quickly my focus shifted from being up early and praying and feeling like, man, I've, me and God are just tight as a drum together to, think, to being so consumed with some little gnat that I began to strain with. It totally took my focus off my mission, off what mattered much more. And maybe for you, you wanna think about how that works in your life because the last part of this, and I'll close with these thoughts, is that the last one of these words that I think we have to have in our life, employ in our life, is fidelity. Fidelity is a word that you don't hear much in our culture anymore. We, we often hear infidelity or infidel, 
and we know what those words mean, but fidelity has a much richer meaning than you can imagine. Fidelity means that it's, it's faithfulness, but it's faithfulness that's distributed out over time. It's faithfulness that reveals itself moment by moment, day by day. And it's built up over a period of time. That's why you have banks and savings and trust companies called fidelity saving. That it's built up over time. They were here yesterday. They're going to be here tomorrow. You know, this is not a commercial for fidelity saving. But you get the point. That's why they chose that name. You know, that they've, they, they're giving you the assurance that it's not just tomorrow they're guaranteeing your money, but they guarantee it because they've been here a long time and they're going to be here a long time. And for us, it's the same thing. God has built that up for us. Fidelity to where we can trust him. We can count on him. He has given us the assurance that the word that he gave to his people before Jesus even came, as Pete referenced earlier, that same truth will be, will be evident for all of eternity that he will continue to not just be faithful, but he will show us fidelity in our lives. And so when Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity, the word he's using there is fidelity. The model is one of fidelity. Do so many good things that people can't help but notice that this goes on and on and on. It's why we as a church, you guys do this. You know, when, when kids in Seminole County need school supplies, you provide them. And when disasters happen in our region and you send teams because we are building up, we're, be, we're trying to be a model of good works. This is not so we're lifted up and, and honored. It's so Jesus is lifted up and honored because where would Jesus show up? He would show up in all those same situations. And so as his followers, because he's our flagship, we follow him. We do what he would do. And in turn, that causes us to build up fidelity in this world. I think you can do the same thing in your relationships. If you're married, the way you build up trust, the way you build up fidelity is being a person of your word, continuing to do the things that you promised you would do. And if you've broken the promise, start today. If you haven't broken the promise, keep it tomorrow. And in every way, we will glorify God as we are able to do that. Because this again comes from seeking him first and his righteousness. And then he will add these things to us. Fidelity is also something that keeps our eyes on the bigger goal, on the things that really matter in life. N.T. Wright wrote these words. He said, in other words, precisely because the ultimate goal is the redemption of the whole creation, our calling is to live in our bodies now in a way which anticipates the life we shall live then. Marital fidelity echoes and anticipates God's fidelity to the whole creation. The Marines call it semper fidelis, semperfi. It's a Marine right there. They, because ever faithful, always faithful. They were, they will be, and they are right now. That's our motto too, that we will always be fidelity. Fidelity will be present in our lives. And so as we close today, you know, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want you to think that, you know, I would, I would tell you these things and read these scriptures to you and and, and say all this and then just say, and so just, just believe this, just, you know, go out there now and, you know, and, and be the flagship and, you know, and, and know what your mission is, you know, and, and, uh, and, and have fidelity in your life. I know it's not a simple thing to do, but you know, you have power right now to make a choice 
to choose to ask God for it right now. And I believe that it only really happens as God works in us. And that scripture that you read, that he conforms us day by day to his image. And we turn from just looking for somebody to being someone in this world. And together, it's the us in the formula, I am equals us. The us becomes a group of men and women who are faithful to one another. And, and we, we have a mission together. And we're fearless in that mission. And today, I just want to ask you to consider this, to consider committing your life to this truth. And I wish I had a more winsome or entertaining way to say it, but it really does come down to you just saying, I'll do it. I'll make the commitment. I'll make the vow to do it. And so three areas that I'm just going to invite you to take about 15 seconds with each one of them and either tell God yes or tell God no. He knows your heart anyway. Tell him yes or tell him no. But make the commitment one way or the other. The first one is this. Fearlessly trust God. Would you do it? Would you just tell him? Would you just tell him right now? And then the second one is this. Would you be willing to seek to use your role as a way to honor Christ? If you're in a marriage, your role in the marriage, would you use your role as a way to honor Christ? Your role as a husband, as a wife. If you're not in a marriage, the way you treat other people, your classmates, your coworkers, would you use your role in every relationship as a way to honor Christ? Would you do it? Would you just tell him, I'll do it? And the third one is this. Who is your fleet? Who is your fleet? You can't be a flagship without a fleet. Got a Navy man right there that'll testify that, right, Terry? You can't be a flagship if you don't have a fleet. And so who's in your fleet? Or are you just a dinghy out on the ocean alone? If you are, get in the fleet. Come and join us. Come and be a part of our fleet. I'll remind you who our flagship is. It's Jesus. We follow him. But there are people who follow you, whether you know it or not. So ask him right now, who is my fleet? And so with that, I'm going to ask you to stand. And for a benediction day, I just want to pray a prayer of blessing over you as we learned that a benediction is just a good word. And I just want to pray a good word over you that what you heard today, you'll be able to do today. This is not something you start tomorrow. It's something you do today. Maybe before you get out of the parking lot or even out of the room, for some of you, it's before you leave these rooms that we're in. There'll be folks praying in the front of this room in each of those correctional facilities and those house churches in the groups that are gathered in places all around the world. If you're sitting in a, just online alone, Bill Geary and Nathan Clark are your online ministers and they would love to pray with you. But if you need to affirm these commitments that you're making today with another person, we want you to to do that before you go today. For some of you, that commitment you need to make is to follow Christ, is to, is to get saved, is literally to be saved. 
And if you want to talk to somebody about that, we'd love to do that. There, again, there will be people here that would love to talk to you about what it means to trust Christ for your salvation. And then before I pray, just remind you once again that there are folks in the hub here in Longwood who would love to talk to you both about the financial freedom opportunities as well as Christians and public education. Thank you for being willing to be involved in, in schools. Uh, we need you to do that, and it's where Jesus would be. And so thank you for doing that. But let me pray this benediction over you and then we'll go and be the church everywhere. God, we're so grateful that you loved us enough as we began this service. We were reminded that you have loved us as if we were the only one to love because of your design. You've made it feel that personal. But you never intended for it to be private. And so you as a God of wonders would create a universe that cannot deny your orchestration, your design, a universe that doesn't try to, a universe that gives you praise even through the heavens. They declare your name. And we sang and affirmed that you're a great God and that you will return for us one day and it's your design that until that day that we would live a missional life in our marriages, in our friendships, with our colleagues, with our classmates. And so we need your help to be reminded moment by moment of that mission. And then that you would make us men and women who, you, who express fidelity in every way, and you would make us fearless in living that mission out. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for all of us together, that we would take this to heart, that we would live it like we mean it, that we would be the flagship in this world, you as our leader, us following you, that we would sail into this world in such a way that that the culture around us would see the good works that we do not to be saved, but to be sanctified and that they would give glory to you. We ask for that in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our service is ended. Go in his power.